Welcome back to Series 2 of Game of Our Lives. I'm David Goldblatt, and wow, the World Cup in Russia is less than a week away. The World Cup is an essentially communal experience. I mean, more than half of humanity will be watching at least some of this tournament. And so, in that communal spirit, I have got a friend, a Sancho Panza, to ride shotgun with me through Series 2. Hello to Tony Caron, Al Jazeera journalist, a former anti-apartheid activist from South Africa, and first and foremost, a Red, a Liverpool supporter, Mr Tony Caron. Hello, how are you? Hello, David. I am good. I am recovering from the concussion I received in the Champions League final, but doing nicely, thank you. <laughs> Maybe you should sue Sergio Ramos in court. <laughs> in the court of public <laughs> opinion, I've already won that one. Oh, yes. No, he's damned forever. Tony, you're calling in from all points of the globe through this World Cup, the kind of globe trotter that you are. Whereabouts are you today? David... I, if you listen very closely, you can hear the sounds of the Indian Ocean lapping against the Somali coastline. Oh, I'm I'm in the city of Barawa. Uh, No, I'm not. I'm actually in San Francisco, but, you know. (laughs) Oh, you tease. But I'd rather be in Barawa. Well, we'll start from San Francisco. And with us, too, making it all happen, connecting us across continents, connecting us to Russia 2018 and to you, is the man at the dials, our extraordinary producer, Mr. Roger Shah. Roger, are you out there? Hello, Dave. Hello, Tony. Yeah, so you are there. Roger, tell me, are you much of a football fan? Uh, I think you know the answer to that, David. Um, I'm I'm a newcomer, (laughs) but uh, working on the show, I would say I've I've been drinking from a fire hose, a football fire hose (laughs) of knowledge and lore from you guys. I'm getting there. Okay, well, there'll be tests and homeworks later, Roger. We won't call you grasshopper. (laughs) (laughs) What can we do for you right now to make the World Cup more comprehensible? I mean, I will say, like a lot of people, I'll be tuning into the World Cup. And I'm curious, what's on your minds a week out from the World Cup? What are you looking forward to? Oh, where do I start? There are so many things on my mind. But broadly speaking, they fall into two camps. There's the on-the-pitch stuff. So, of course, I'm worrying about, well, will Deli Ali find space between the lines to give England half a chance of making it into the round of 16? But I'm also really interested in what's going to be happening off the pitch, or in the words of Stringer Bell from The Wire, the game beyond the game. Tony, what do you fancy looking at at this World Cup? What are you waiting to see? Well, beyond the game, beyond the game... (laughs) (laughs) You know, the game itself, I'm looking forward to the evolution that we're, we're looking at now. The beautiful game that was once Brazil's became Germany's. And, you know, is Brazil going to adapt and, and start playing like the Germans, i.e. being themselves again one day? You know, playing something that makes us all go, ah, a football that's easy on the eye. I know. It would be nice to have a Brazil, like you say, that's easy on the eye, that's kind of easy to love. It wasn't easy to love Brazil at 2014. No, and it hasn't been easy to love Brazil for a decade before that, frankly. But it's okay. I'm finding it pretty easy to love France. They're certainly the people I'm looking forward to uh, seeing most. And I'll tell you guys, I've had a little bet. £20 each way at unbelievably 6-1 to one for France to win the tournament. So even if they come in second, I'm getting 3-1. to one. How good is that? <laughs> 
There's plenty of stuff off the pitch as well to look forward to at this World Cup. One of the most politically complex and controversial uh, of the last 30 or 40 years. I think the first thing that I'll be looking for is to see whether Mr. Set Blatter actually shows up. Unbelievably, he's been invited by Vladimir Putin to attend the event, despite having been banned by FIFA itself from any kind of footballing activity. So if he does show up, I really look forward to the conflict going on between between the uh, FIFA protocol people and the Russians who were running the VIP box. <laughs> I back the FIFA secret police. <laughs> you know, ha- having having watched FIFA at close quarters policing the zone, as it were, around the World Cup stadium in South Africa, that 1.5-mile perimeter is pretty much uh, FIFA terrain. It's a sovereign mini-state. I know, but, you know, as we know, Russia is not the uh, the most consistent respecter of international laws and international agreements. I mean, I think it is kind of irresistible force meets a movable object. FIFA sovereignty versus the interests of the Russian deep state. All around whether Mr. Set Blatter is allowed into the VVIP box. And on that thought, I'm pleased to say that we got someone really fantastic in to discuss the situation in Russia and Russian football. Last week, I did an interview with Sasha Gurunov. He's a Russian writer who grew up in Liverpool and amazingly has acquired a scout accent on top of an unmistakable Russian burr to his voice. He started writing about football to keep up with his Russian while living abroad in London. He's still a Liverpool supporter and he's going to be a guide for us and tell us a little bit about what we've been missing about Russia 2018 and what we might see if we look more closely. Hello, Sasha. Hello, David. Where were you born in Russia, by the way? Uh, just a small town just outside Moscow, a place where they played no football, but they played bandy. Do you know what bandy is? Uh, I do know bandy, but mainly from Sweden. Yeah, exactly. Big rivals. Thinking now about the 2018 World Cup in Russia, it has occurred to me that Vladimir Putin loves to be pictured as a man of action. You know, we've seen him wrestling animals. <laughs> we've seen him taking to the ice with professional hockey players. We've seen him conducting serious level judo and karate and taking an ice bath in his wife fronts. But we've never seen him in a football shirt. I wonder... Does Vladimir Putin actually like football? And more seriously, how much does Russia really like football? I think it's, it is a country that is, you could say, it's not particularly obsessed with a single sport. Uh, and when it comes to Putin, uh, you know, you can't, I, th- I think you can't enjoy every sport. Uh, definitely, his, his big two passions are judo and ice hockey, and he's notorious for his matches. Also, he's notorious for his scoring. Hmm, I wonder why. <laughs> um, but uh, Football World Cup for him is is an event uh, that I, I think when the opportunity arose, he, he just couldn't, he couldn't bypass it. So I think he grabbed it with both hands. And I think also, you know, the world was a different place in 2010. You know, but you say he grabbed it with both hands, Sasha. But I feel like his grip wasn't that strong where compared to Sochi 2014, where if you want to tell the world Russia is back, the Olympics is the way to do it. Football somehow seems to be almost like an afterthought. Well, the thing is, I think it would have made sense to have a great Olympics followed up by a great World Cup just to cement your place. 
Unfortunately, as we all know, uh, the Olympics didn't quite work out as he planned, even at the time, because things went south in Ukraine very, very quickly. And those events definitely obscured any Olympic legacy. And then, of course, the doping allegations, which totally tarnished uh, Sochi 2014. So I think now we're at a stage where perhaps 2018 World Cup can do a bit of face-saving for Russia if they host the tournament well. To return to your original question, how much Russia actually loves football? You see, I'm not convinced it loves football that much. I mean, if you look at the attendances, 12,000, 13,000 in the top flights, if you look at the general coverage of football, how much do Russians actually watch football? Not that much. The TV audiences for football aren't great. It's, you know, single percentage figures, even for bigger matches. There was obviously a hike in popularity in 2008. Okay, when they do brilliantly at the Euros. Yeah. uh, And Ashavan is playing well and you know you're actually getting kind of public gatherings in Moscow kind of you know the way you do in many cities but for the first time in Russia you're getting these big gatherings happy crowds face painting are we going to see that or is that just a flash in the pan of a kind of earlier and less crisis ridden Russia I think people will still be excited and there will be fan zones so I think you will see those colorful crowds however I think this time there will definitely be a big effort to put on the show that the country is excited uh, about the World Cup. Unfortunately, the team is terrible. Absolutely terrible. So it's very hard to get excited about the team. And my sense is that the public in Russia sometimes can get pretty nasty about these things. <laughs> and I wonder, you know, if things don't go quite right in that opening game with Saudi Arabia, you know, how do you, what do you expect? How do you expect the mood to kind of go? I think the big difference is in 2014, there were still some expectations. The, the performances weren't great, but there was certain confidence, certain competence about the Russian team going into the World Cup. Whereas this time, there's really none of that. So I think expectations are at rock bottom. To be honest, I think if, if Russia somehow get out of the group, uh, that would be massive national celebrations because um, I think this is possibly the, the best thing they can aim for at the moment. Uh, because certainly... Uh, on paper I mean even if you compare them to Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia played some fantastic football against Italy the other day and I was sort of looking at it going Russia have done nothing like this so suddenly that opening game actually quite a lot's riding on that I mean if they're going to get out of the group they're not going to get anything against Uruguay you know you've got to assume Egypt well we'll see what state Mo Salah is in but you know quite a challenge they need you know they need to win their opening game they can't even really afford to go out and kind of scratch out a draw if they're serious how will that play do you think I think it's going to be a very scrappy game, uh, possibly the worst opening game of all time. I'm sorry for being so downbeat, uh, and uh, but really, there's no other way. And may- maybe they might scrape a one nil. Um, thing is, it suddenly becomes massive uh, that they actually have to win it, and this is the extra pressure for a team that hasn't really shown any glimmers of progress uh, in years. Interestingly, I realised myself when I first looked at the um, the list of Stadia and World Cup cities, actually how little Russian geography I knew. I'm sort of going, what? Ekaterinburg? What the hell is that? And I think we're all, you know, beyond um, St. Petersburg and Moscow, most folks, this is all new territory. So I wonder if you could just take us through, give us a little survey of some of the cities and some of the places we're going to see and what, you know, what we should be looking for at this World Cup. Yeah, so it's, yeah, as I said, a few interesting locations. And for me, probably Kaliningrad stands out the most as being almost one of the most unusual cities in all of Europe. 
uh, because Kaliningrad, for those maybe who are not so familiar with the history of that part of the world, it's actually in the old Prussian capital of Königsberg. Home of Emmanuel Kant. Home of Emmanuel Kant and Euler with his uh, seven bridges um, puzzle. Historically, it's a very sort of educated place. It's, uh, you know, had 16th century university. But fundamentally, uh, its downfall eventually, many hundreds of years later, was the fact that it was seen as the cradle of Prussian militarism. And um, after the two world wars, and particularly the Second World War, as it was drawing to conclusion, uh, the Russian troops were converging on, the, on East Prussia. Um, and they stormed Königsberg uh, in April 1945. And it was seen as, as, a big, as, as the big prize in that region. I traveled from Gdansk to Kaliningrad uh, on the way to Kiev during Euro 2012. And I was able to compare Gdansk, which was in similar state in 1945, to Königsberg. And it was such a contrast, and I felt it was it was quite painful to be honest. What was the contrast, Sasha? I mean, presumably Gdansk was in better shape. Uh, so Gdansk, so both cities, you know, obviously suffered from the sieges. They also suffered from the RAF bombing in 1944. But Gdansk was gradually rebuilt. Even but even to this day, there was bits of it that were still being put back together. However, when you come to Kaliningrad, um, it's all new Soviet-style blocks. There's a few old buildings, so it's there was absolutely no effort to reconnect with the old history. And but why take why take the World Cup there, Sasha? If the football team's pretty poor, you know, there's not a lot to show off. What's Russia saying to us by making sure that there's coverage of this city? Do you think? Well, their plan is to make it into some sort of a free free economic zone. Uh, to attract businesses. So this status has been in place since 2006. But the way I look at it, I don't think it's been particularly successful in attracting, I don't know, IT support and, you know, I don't know, shipping companies and, 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 uh, and the like. So I think possibly one of the reasons is to promote it and to, to put it on the map now uh, to make sure that, you know, people are aware of where it is and then perhaps businesses will invest, will set themselves up. There was, there was talk, I was uh, again talking to someone, the area by the stadium might be even turned into some sort of an offshore financial zone or something like that because the area um, around the stadium, it's, if you like, it's virgin land. Uh, and in fact, the fact that they built it there is a bit nuts because it's, it used to be a swamp. There's, well, there's something to be said for building a free economic zone on a swamp, if only at a kind of <laughs> symbolic level. Well, and I think with Königsberg, uh, yeah, I, I don't think anyone's really, uh, from what I've seen in the press and uh, speaking to people, no one really knows what, what it's about. So I think a lot of people will be turning up there going, oh, just maybe another Soviet, old Soviet city, but it isn't. I think you have to scratch below the surface. And it is, it is a very interesting, fascinating place, which is, I think, unlike any other city hosting the World Cup. Talking about scratching beneath the surface, Saransk has pretty extraordinary um, history as a city. What's, what's been going on there for the last 60, 70 years? Well, Saransk was a bizarre choice, even by Russian standards. Uh, it was met at the time with, you know, I think the jaws hit the floor. The area itself, the population is very small. I think Saransk itself has about 300,000 people. And the region, Mordovia, is mostly known for its walking, like Olympic walking, and its uh, prison colonies. Exactly. This is the home, one of the kind of gulags before you get to Siberia. This is an early gulag city, essentially. So essentially, yeah. So it's basically that gulag around the corner because it's not really that far from Moscow. It's, it's not. You haven't even reached the Volga yet. So it's uh, it's got its forests, and in the forests there are prisoners, and it's it's 
it, it is an absolutely insane choice of venue, basically. Kazan is an interesting choice. Kazan is actually the capital of the Republic of Tatarstan. And I wonder if you could just explain for our listeners, what is this thing with, like, Russia's got all these republics inside it? What's what's going on there? And who are they? And how come their football team has been so good? So this, this is something that... Um Russians often like to point out when they get accused of racism, for example, uh, that they come from a very multinational country. I think Russia now, well, minus all the former Soviet republics, still contains about 100 nationalities. So historically, as Russia was expanding east, they were absorbing the peoples and the, you know, the states that were on that side. And in fact, the strongest one in the way of the Russian expansion were the Tatars in Kazan. There was the, the Khanate of Kazan uh, that was captured by Ivan the Terrible in the mid-16th century. But the, the, the Tatars as, as a people and even as a, as, a, as a small sort of republic have survived ever since with their own culture, uh, with their own religion. And uh, now they're quite a prosperous um, little republic within Russia uh, with lots of oil and natural resources, which makes it a very prosperous place. It's really interesting to hear you say that Russians counter accusations of racism by pointing out what is absolutely true, the enormous ethnic heterogeneity mm. of mm. Russia. You know, and we're talking Ossetians and we're talking Caucasians and it's a big mix. What else has the media, particularly in the Anglophone Global North, which is running along, you know, a story of Russia and Russian football as essentially super racist, ultra-nationalist, nativist and pretty violent round the edges. How much of that broadly is true? How much of it is myth-making? And what, if anything, of these phenomena actually are we likely to see at the World Cup? Of course, I mean, the uh, the biggest elephant in the room is the hooliganism. But those guys had their day at the Euros in Marseille. Oh, Marseille 2016, where a couple of hundred semi-organised Russian hooligans charged the English, both in the uh, the old port and at the stadium during the England-Russia game. Yes. Putin realised that the fans have to behave shortly after the World Cup was awarded to Russia in 2010. I think he very quickly realised that this is something that needs to be reined in and this is something that's not allowed to happen. So he met, say, if, if you like, ultras heads and he sat them down mm. and said, said, lads, we got the World Cup. They're all up against us. We have to be good patriotic Russians here and not let ourselves down. This, this is where the state means business and this is where the state can um, pull in certain people for conversations and effectively warn them in no uncertain terms. Nothing happens during the World Cup. If something happens... Well, we're not going to hold just those guys involved accountable. We're going to hold all of you accountable. I mean, to the extent that I think some people maybe maybe even be leaving the country for the tournament just to make sure, like, if something happens, look, we weren't here. Okay, so that's the downside of the Russia 2018 World Cup. Tell me, Sasha, where are the good times going to be? What's the best of Russia that we're going to see? We know about the bad stuff. What are we, what's the best stuff that's going to be on show? So first thing for me is people will discover these cities they've never heard of, they've never visited. They will go to places like Volgograd and Kazan and Nikotinimburg. And this, some of these places might be rougher around the edges. But I think something that people don't realize is like, if you take a place like Yekaterinburg, it's in the Urals, how many foreign visitors do these people get? I mean, and this is what people don't realize. Somewhere like Russia, even like, you know, almost 30 years after the fall of the wall, people don't get out that much. So to get thousands of, I don't know, 
random Mexicans descending on a city in the middle of Russia, they'd be delighted. I mean, people will be, I think, super friendly and people will be very hospitable and they will try to make friends with these people and they will try to see what they're about. And it's somewhere like, I don't know, Vol- Volgograd. Yes, it's got its terrible World War II history, but it's also got the Volga, it's got the crayfish, it's got the beer. It's also got very hot weather. <laughs> but again, I think, I think the hospitality and stepping out of your comfort zone, I think this is where Russia can surprise when it comes down to people, the Russians are a good bunch, and I think they will make people feel very welcome. I still think, I think, unfortunately, it's a lot of discourse in the press, and you know, when, when it comes to the troubles, when it comes to things like the events in Salisbury, it kind of invokes this. People go, ah, Cold War, that's it. Going back to the Cold War, we're dealing with the KGB. Oh, they're all like this. All oh, those Russians haven't changed, and you know, people. Even in the times of the Cold War, people people were still very nice people, and it just was unfortunate they grew up under a completely different system. But now, it's it, the world is changing. Yet perhaps in these far flung cities, it hasn't changed that much, and they would welcome something different arriving on the doorstep, even for a couple of games. And they, I think, will do their best to make sure that the visitors are well looked after. Sasha, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. And I really learned some Kalinograd today as well. That was good. (laughs) Who else in this World Cup is talking about Emmanuel Kant? That's what Game of... That's what... The only show to bring you the critique of pure reason at the 2018 World Cup. That was Sasha Gurinov. You can follow him on Twitter at Slasher with four R's. I think I better spell that for you. At S-L-A-S-H-E-R-R-R-R. Slasher with four R's. Check him out. Tony, anything strike you about Sasha's take on the World Cup? Do you ex- Are you, like him, optimistic that Russia's more positive and open side will be on display in these far-flung cities? Well, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. And the reason is because I think... Perhaps Putin is drawing a line in the sand and policing that line in the sand. But if you think about it, where do the Russian authorities draw that line? And is it in a place where, you know, the rest of us might feel comfortable? I'm not so sure in terms of what they deem acceptable and unacceptable. I think we could see, you know, some some nastiness in a way that wouldn't suit that that narrative at all, the, the kind of gentler face of Russia. And I presume you're not even talking about the England defence at this point. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, when we've seen, you know, football crowds in Russia hurling racist abuse at players and so on. The whole idea of what's acceptable is really different in Russia. We will see. Roger. Anything on your agenda from that interview? Oh, I mean, I was struck by his earlier comment that the Russia-Saudi Arabia opening game might be the worst opening game of all time. I'm curious, does that sound right to you guys? Ooh, there's a thought. (laughs) I mean, I found, you know, obviously in footballing terms, it's not offering a lot to us. Saudi Arabia are phenomenally weak, and hey, Russia are just about the same. Both will be desperately nervous. Nobody will want to give anything away, and there really won't be a lot of attacking flair on the field. On the other hand, you know, as two of the most significant actors currently in the struggles in the Middle East, diametrically opposed to each other in Syria, one can't but, you know, sense some kind of deep political frisson in the game. How about you, Tony? Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm remembering, uh, don't don't underestimate Saudi Arabia's ability to pull off bizarre upsets, but that said, you know, FIFA's received wisdom has always been it's really important for the host country to progress as far as possible in terms of the atmospherics of the World Cup. And I think what we saw in South Africa 
was that that's not really true anymore. In an age where the global satellite audience is so massive and that audience behaves like a crowd by talking to itself and to one another on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, it really, the atmospherics of the game are a global electronic phenomenon uh, where, you know, the local, who's filling the stadium may not actually matter as much as it once did. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Okay, so the time has come to introduce you to our World Cup sequence, What to Watch. Raja, tell us a little and tell the audience a little about What to Watch. Well, first of all, we got to hear the What to Watch bumper. What, what to, to watch? Watch. What, 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 what to watch? <laughs> <laughs> That's a bumper. Okay, well, I can go with that. Tell us what happens. We now know the music. What happens in the segment, Roger? Right, so the idea is there's going to be a lot going on this summer, on the pitch, off the pitch, and it can be overwhelming. So I want to get your guys' take on what to look out for, matches that you guys are curious about, storylines you'll be following, um, and it's a chance for you guys to give me and our listeners some pointers on what to watch. Yeah, pointers, pointers for the curious, where to put your eyes, who to look at, what to worry about, maybe some homework to do beforehand. All right. How does that sound, Roger? Yeah, well, I, that sounds good. Um, and so in that spirit, what should I watch this week? Well, this week, because there actually isn't any World Cup going on just yet, I'm going to give you something a little bit from left field. There are no shortage of games and stories at the World Cup, but not the FIFA World Cup. At the moment, going on in London, England, we have the CONIFA World Football Cup. CONIFA, the Confederation of Independent Football Associations. All the territorial entities, peoples, diasporas, aspirant secessionist city-states, irredentists everywhere who can't actually get into FIFA come together in CONIFA to play football. So at the 2018 CONIFA Alternative World Cup, you've got, for example, Tibet, who can't get membership of FIFA because the Chinese absolutely will not have it. You've got a diasporic migrant team of United Koreans from Japan. Um, you've got, um, now how do we pronounce this, Land, which is the Hungarian-speaking part of Romania, and another high Hungarian diaspora team, the Carpathians, I believe, who were spread over the western Ukraine, Slovakia and Poland. Tony, any of those teams on your radar? <laughs> I have to say, I, you know, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm hearing the con in Kanifa very loudly, <laughs> because, you know, looking at this, at, at the the member states, you know, the, the the teams that are kind of represented there. I see some things that we should take very seriously. Unresolved national questions like Western Sahara or Tibet, Tamil Alam. Now, the problem is when you're mixing the serious like Western Sahara and Tibet with the not exactly serious, you know, look, I'm, I'm not somebody who is... Uh, has a default belief that the world needs more nation states. I'm not sure about this veneration of the nation state. Sorry, Scotland, Hosento Catalonia. But really, you know, we need to think, stop and think about this. I mean, why don't we have a World Cup of pre-modern empires? I know Dude, we- I am loving your pre-modern empire idea. Like, I'm, are we having the Aztecs, yes. the Incas, the Han? The Ottomans and the Habsburgs and the Malians and the Ghanaians. What Ghanians? about the Mughals? What about what? I'm in the Roman Empire, though, man, definitely. <laughs> I know we're on the fringes here in England, but I'm definitely hanging in with those Romans. All right, so what should I watch? <laughs> 
<laughs> coming back to the name of the segment well there's so many there's so many things to watch but to make it easier for you give you a little in we actually sent our reporter Jasmine Biomi to a game at the Conifa World Cup last weekend she saw the group stage match between the Somali port town of Barawa and Cascadia which is a kind of fantasy breakaway Canadian US cross-border hipsterville invention that would include everything from British Columbia in a bioregion down to Humboldt County in Northern California, if that's your idea of a good time. Let's have a listen to what she brought back. Hi, I'm Haji Munye. Um, I'm from uh, F.A. Barawa. Barawa is in the southwest region of Somalia. Um, basically, the last 30, 40 years, Barawa has been occupied, it's been oppressed. Um, we've had a lot of attacks from Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab have occupied Barawa. Um, so yeah, for us, really, having a team representing it within Kanifa is incredible. It's unbelievable. The whole football thing is good because it's positive exposure out there for Barawa. The movement began so that we can do stuff back home. You know, we wanted to start the rehabilitation process back home. We wanted to give hope for the young kids back home. A lot of them now look at the Barawa team and they say, oh, I want to play for Barawa when I'm older. So it's incredible. Being Barawani, I love it, you know, and it means a lot to all our players as well, you know, because the cause is massive for them. And that's why players are here playing for us. It's a major cause. Okay, my name is Jordan Wilson. Um, I'm a center midfielder for Cascadia. Cascadia is a minority between the Pacific Northwest, so Vancouver, Seattle, Oregon, I think a bit of San Francisco as well. It's a group of people that <clears throat> I think that would want to be an independent, yeah, you could say nation. And so, I, to be honest, I didn't really know so much about it before, but I really, yeah, kind of caught on the wave, you could say. All right, I'm standing here with Mr. Barawa. You've been just yelling from the side of the field, giving people instructions. Can you tell me who you are and what you're doing here? Um, well, my name is Mohamed Al-Kasifi, uh, also known as Moses, my nickname. Um, I've got a lot of you know, friends that I consider as my brothers in this team, um, known each other from when we were young. So it's just, it's just passion and love, support all the way for Barawa. So are you from Barawa? No, no, myself, I'm Lebanese. I'm Lebanese, um, born in, in, in England myself. So yeah, it's just love and passion. It drives me through. Uh, I'm Uriah Donovan. I'm uh, from Seattle, Washington. I'm a comic book writer and blogger for Cascadia Underground. Um, I'm a part-time football soccer player. I would not play for the American football team. The goal of this entire tournament and our organization in general is that is to have that cultural association uh, for Cascadia as a bioregion. So it would it would kind of defeat my purpose. So what do you think about Conifa? Yeah, no, look, they're, they're bringing awareness to people that are you know consider themselves as an unrecognized state. So you know, me coming from uh, a Lebanese background, you know, I know I know how it feels to be like um, a, a small communal country in mid the Middle East and try to branch out. So I know in terms of that, it's good. They're bringing a lot of, you know, exposure. 
to these unrecognized states, which is good, you know. Everyone can get their voice out there eventually. Well, there you have it, the Conifa World Cup. Try and catch the final tomorrow if you can. We're recording this show a little bit early, so we don't actually know who's playing in it. But you can find out at conifa.org. And there's a link there to a stream so you can watch the match online too. And I'll just mention that Cascadia ended up winning that game against Barawa 2-1. to one. That's good to hear. Cascadia onwards. Today, the Conifa World Cup. Tomorrow, domination of the global economy. I was pleased to see that uh, among the Conifa entrants was Yorkshire. <laughs> I will say, if Cascadia has a team, then I'm waiting for the San Francisco Tech Bros to field a, a, a contingent for next time around. <laughs> I think that's about all for today. It's come to the moment when we need to wrap it all up. We'll be back next week, the day after the opening game of the World Cup, and after that, we'll be with you twice weekly. We'll be talking about the games, we'll be talking about what's going on off the field and everything that's going on in Russia. We've got guests, and we've got more of the lovely Tony Karen. Tony Karen, thank you so much for being with us. As ever, you'll never walk alone, David. <laughs> Roger Shah, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, David. And you, the audience, thank you too for being with us. If you're here for the first time, why don't you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at, at Game of Our Lives. This show is a production of Jetty Studios. It's recorded at the Soundtown Studios in Bristol, UK. Music is by Bang Data. I am David Goldblatt, and we'll see you next week. I had all sorts of Immanuel Kant material just ready to go that's now stuck in the vault. <laughs>